Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 469 A Touch of Slapstick. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are well. I am well. Things have been a little bit hectic. Thing one had all four wisdom teeth taken out. And of course, it's the beginning of the school year, which means it's all back to school this and go and order that and don't forget the yearbook. And oh, by the way, this year we have. And for those of you who are longtime listeners, I know that this is going to make you have a little moment. So you might want to sit down because this year we also had to have taken, select, and order senior portraits for thing one. Yes, that's how long this podcast has gone on. When I first started, Thing One was in kindergarten. So for those of you, those of you who have been with me this whole time, wow, we really need to sit down and have a drink together and go over what, what has just occurred in the span of the last several years. Uh, and for those of you who have run the gauntlet of showing up and listening to all 11 and a half years of episodes, it's been compressed in time for you. But nonetheless, congratulations, we've made it to his senior year. I'm still kind of shell-shocked. But I went to back to school night last night and met all of his teachers, and his classes are wonderful, and his teachers are great, and I'm very excited for his year. I want to go take some of his classes, too. So that's been a lot of fun and very freaky all at the same time, which I suppose actually is kind of like life. And... The Count. This week, there really isn't a whole lot for me to share with you beyond just a couple of things, one of which is that the second chapter that we listened to today is full of slapstick. So you're welcome. We <laughs> Dumas clearly felt that everybody needed a little bit of fun in the middle of the crushing pain that is the end of the book. Crushing and yet arguably justifiable pain. So there's that. There are a couple of other references that I wanted to go over with you today. But before we get to today's chapters, which are eight, uh, uh, sorry, eight, 108, 109, 110, and 111, because these are all related chapters, I got so many voicemails and messages and emails all about the Black Mariah and the Salad Basket. And I knew you would come through. You are just so awesome. We heard from Jennifer and Christine and Olwyn and Sarah, just to name a few. There are more. We're going to play a couple for you as well. But we got links, actually several different links from different places. Christine sent some really, really interesting ones. But I'm going to smash all of the comments together into this. The salad basket in the French version 
of the police van or carriage. Jennifer mentioned that she wondered, there's a traditional French wire salad drying basket to dry your lettuce before you plop it into salad form. She's wondering if that's where the salad basket phrase comes from because it is wire cage-like basketry. And the way that they describe the, the metal grating on this particular police wagon might in fact have looked like that. So that's one. I didn't know that there was a traditional French wire salad drying basket. So there's that. For the Black Mariah, Olwen mentions growing up in England and used Black Mariah to refer to the black police vans that were used for transporting prisoners. The translation, and this is a comment that many, many people made, the assumption is that the translation in the Victorian version versus the modern version was one of completely one of colloquial statements. So salad basket would have been the early Victorian French version in French, salad basket in the Victorian English version would have been a literal word for word translation. Robin Buss, being British, would have used the British colloquialism, which was Black Mariah, Black Police Van. And then leaving those idiomatic phrases behind, the one that people kept connecting the phraseology to in the United States was paddy wagon, P-A-D-D-Y-W-A-G-O-N, something that actually came up in a speech not too long ago that was made by the president here. This gets interesting because Christine, who you might know as Crumbs from His Table, she found a whole bunch of articles, and all of these are going to be in the show notes, on the usage of the term paddy wagon. Some people were unhappy with the president's use of this term because they said it was an, an ethnic slur. Paddy going back to Ireland, another name for, I guess, a diminutive form of Patrick. Paddy wagon, Irish, certainly in Boston, but also in New York, in the, the northern Atlantic region. As immigration did what immigration does, you get these big waves of immigration from places. The Irish come over, the Irish move in, the Irish eventually move up out of the Lower East Side, which is where all poorer immigrant groups went to early on. They move up and out of the Lower East Side and into larger society. One of the ways that this happened is you had a lot of Irish immigrants going into law enforcement and fire protection. So you had a lot of Irish policemen and you had a lot of Irish firemen, among other ethnic groups. I'm just focusing on the Irish for now. Now, this is where it gets interesting because some people think that the paddy wagon is an offensive term because the Irish would get drunk and get picked up and put into the paddy wagon and taken to prison to either sober up or if they caused real trouble to get arrested and arraigned and all of that. Some people think it's called a paddy wagon because the Irish were using it. The Irish police officers were using it. I don't have access to the OED right now, so I don't have any more access to more specific information than this. But it is an interesting problem, right? Because right now people get upset about words. Words carry meaning. Meaning can mean good things or bad things. And here we have a term that is actually, without something like the OED, really kind of hard to parse. 
And there doesn't seem to be any consistent or very specifically sourced consensus about this term. So either paddy wagon is a term that was used by Irish cops to describe the Black Mariah or the salad basket that they used, or it was a term that was used as a slur against Irish who were being picked up by the police officers and taken to the prison. I don't know, but it's an interesting problem. And it all goes back to the salad basket and the Black Mariah. So thank you everyone for calling in and writing in with answers and links and all of this cool stuff. And thank you for reminding us that words, you know, actually matter. I love that. All right. So that takes care of last week. This week we have, we have new stuff. We have a reference to a character lopping off the top of the poppies, walking through a garden and with his walking stick, knocking off the tops of poppies. And it's clearly a reference to something. So I went and I looked this up and it's kind of cool. And the best part, as I was reading around about this, is that it's actually referred to as the tall poppy syndrome on Wikipedia, which I loved. This has become a syndrome. This goes way, way, way back. So there was a ruler named Sextus Tarquinius. His son, Tarquin, became a ruler in another land, uh, Gabai. And he said, you know, hey, dad, I'm sending you this messenger with this message because I've done all the stuff I'm supposed to do. I'm in charge. Nobody bugs me. It's all good, but I'm kind of bored. So what do I do now? The messenger shows up to Sextus Tarquinus, gives him this message, and the father, instead of responding, goes out into the garden, takes a stick, and starts whacking off the top of all the tallest poppies in the garden. The messenger keeps waiting for a response, isn't getting one. Suddenly the light goes off and he goes, oh, I get it. He goes back to the sun and says, hey, Tarquin, here's what your dad says. Your dad wants you to kill off all of the most powerful people who are left. And that way you won't have any trouble anymore. There won't be anything else that could cause you trouble, anything else left that could cause you trouble. And so that's what he did. He just killed them all knocking the heads off the tallest poppies. That's where that comes from. There are several different versions of the story, but that's, that's the one that I found most consistently. So that was kind of cool. There's also another reference of being irresistibly attracted to something like a bird to a serpent. And this was interesting because a bunch of us were looking for the original source of this and we haven't found it. I was sure it was a fable. And then I started thinking, oh, it sounds like a just so story. Maybe it's going back to some like one-off line from the Mahabharata or something, you know, something from Africa, some old, old, old story. I still haven't found it. But the idea is that birds, because they can fly, can get away. And snakes are fast. And so if you're kind of a cocky bird, <laughs> you are going to find it really hard not to, on occasion, tempt a snake or just, you know, have fun seeing how close you can fly to the head of a snake without getting 86. So there's a story there, but that's the most I can do right now. Like I said, I've, I found, you know, bits and pieces of references to older stories, but I didn't find anything. 
conclusive. So if you know something, give us a call 206-350-1642 or email heather at craftlit.com and we'll share it next week. I already warned you that in uh, chapter 109, we're going to get some slapstick. Actually, there's quite a bit of slapstick, but there's a very specific slapsticky bit with a monocle, which is fun. And that's pretty much it. We get another reference to cambric, a lightweight linen or cotton fabric, a lightweight, closely woven, very fine. Oh, and livid. Livid, if you, if you turn livid, you are turning a darkish, bluish gray color. It's not livid red or splotchy. It's dark blue-gray. So just keep that in mind. Not, not a healthy looking color is what we're going for here. And that's it. All right, let's listen to 108, 109, 110, and 111 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 108 The Judge We remember that the Abbe Boussoni remained alone with Noirtier in the chamber of death, and that the old man and the priest were the sole guardians of the young girl's body. Perhaps it was the Christian exhortations of the Abbe, perhaps his kind charity, perhaps his persuasive words which had restored the courage of Noirtier, for ever since he had conversed with the priest, his violent despair had yielded to a calm resignation which surprised all who knew his excessive affection for Valentine. Monsieur de Villefort had not seen his father since the morning of the death. The whole establishment had been changed. Another valet was engaged for himself, a new servant for Noirtier. Two women had entered Madame de Villefort's service. In fact, everywhere to the concierge and the coachmen, new faces were presented to the different masters of the house, thus widening the division which had always existed between the members of the same family. The assizes also were about to begin, and Villefort, shut up in his room, exerted himself with feverish anxiety in drawing up the case against the murderer of Caderousse. This affair, like all those in which the Count of Monte Cristo had interfered, caused a great sensation in Paris. The proofs were certainly not convincing, since they rested upon a few words written by an escaped galley-slave on his deathbed and who might have been actuated by hatred or revenge in accusing his companion. But the mind of the procureur was made up. He felt assured that Benedetto was guilty, and he hoped by his skill in conducting this aggravated case to flatter his self-love, which was about the only vulnerable point left in his frozen heart. The case was therefore prepared owing to the incessant labour of Villefort, who wished it to be the first on the list in the coming assizes. He had been obliged to seclude himself more than ever, to evade the enormous number of applications presented to him for the purpose of obtaining tickets of admission to the court on the day of trial, and then so short a time had elapsed since the death of poor Valentine, and the gloom which overshadowed the house was so recent that no one wondered to see the father so absorbed in his professional duties, which were the only means he had of dissipating his grief. Once only had Villefort seen his father. It was the day after that upon which Bertuccio had paid his second visit to Benedetto, when the latter was to learn his father's name. The magistrate, harassed and fatigued, 
had descended to the garden of his house, and in a gloomy mood, similar to that in which Tarquin lopped off the tallest poppies, he began knocking off with his cane the long and dying branches of the rose-trees, which, placed along the avenue, seemed like the spectres of the brilliant flowers which had bloomed in the past season. More than once he had reached that part of the garden where the famous boarded gate stood overlooking the deserted enclosure, always returning by the same path to begin his walk again, at the same pace and with the same gesture, when he accidentally turned his eyes towards the house, whence he heard the noisy play of his son, who had returned from school to spend the Sunday and Monday with his mother. While doing so, he observed Monsieur Noirtier at one of the open windows, where the old man had been placed that he might enjoy the last rays of the sun, which yet yielded some heat, and was now shining upon the dying flowers and red leaves of the creeper which twined around the balcony. The eye of the old man was riveted upon a spot which Villefort could scarcely distinguish. His glance was so full of hate, of ferocity, and savage impatience, that Villefort turned out of the path he had been pursuing to see upon what person this dark look was directed. Then he saw beneath a thick clump of linden-trees, which were nearly divested of foliage, Madame de Villefort, sitting with a book in her hand, the perusal of which she frequently interrupted to smile upon her son, or to throw back his elastic ball, which he obstinately threw from the drawing-room into the garden. Villefort became pale. He understood the old man's meaning. Noirtier continued to look at the same object, but suddenly his glance was transferred from the wife to the husband, and Villefort himself had to submit to the searching investigation of eyes, which, while changing their direction, and even their language, had lost none of their menacing expression. Madame de Villefort, unconscious of the passions that exhausted their fire over her head, at that moment held her son's ball, and was making signs to him to reclaim it with a kiss. Edward begged for a long while, the maternal kiss probably not offering sufficient recompense for the trouble he must take to obtain it. However, at length he decided, leapt out of the window into a cluster of heliotropes and daisies, and ran to his mother, his forehead streaming with perspiration. Madame de Villefort wiped his forehead, pressed her lips upon it, and sent him back with the ball in one hand and some bonbon in the other. Villefort, drawn by an irresistible attraction like that of the bird to the serpent, walked towards the house. As he approached it, Noirtier's gaze followed him, and his eyes appeared of such a fiery brightness that Villefort felt them pierce to the depths of his heart. In that earnest look might be read a deep reproach, as well as a terrible menace. Then Noirtier raised his eyes to heaven, as though to remind his son of a forgotten oath. "'It is well, sir,' replied Villefort from below. "'It is well. Have patience, but one day longer. What I have said I will do.' Noirtier seemed to be calmed by these words, and turned his eyes with indifference to the other side. Villefort violently unbuttoned his greatcoat, which seemed to strangle him, and passing his livid hand across his forehead, entered his study. The night was cold and still, 
the family had all retired but villefort who alone remained up and worked till five o'clock in the morning reviewing the last interrogatories made the night before by the examining magistrates compiling the depositions of the witnesses and putting the finishing stroke to the deed of accusation which was one of the most energetic and best conceived of any he had yet delivered the next day monday was the first sitting of the assizes the morning dawned dull and gloomy and villefort saw the dim gray light shine upon the lines he had traced in red ink the magistrate had slept for a short time while the lamp sent forth its final struggles its flickerings awoke him and he found his fingers as damp and purple as though they had been dipped in blood he opened the window a bright yellow streak crossed the sky and seemed to divide in half the poplars which stood out in black relief on the horizon in the clover fields beyond the chestnut trees a lark was mounting up to heaven while pouring out her clear morning song the damps of the dew bathed the head of villefort and refreshed his memory today he said with an effort today the man who holds the blade of justice must strike wherever there is guilt involuntarily his eyes wandered towards the window of noirtier's room where he had seen him the preceding night the curtain was drawn and yet the image of his father was so vivid to his mind that he addressed the closed window as though it had been open and as if through the opening he had beheld the menacing old man yes he murmured yes be satisfied his head dropped upon his chest and in this position he paced his study then he threw himself dressed as he was upon a sofa lest to sleep and to rest his limbs cramped with cold and study by degrees everyone awoke villefort from his study heard the successive noises which accompany the life of a house the opening and shutting of doors the ringing of madame de villefort's bell to summon the waiting-maid mingled with the first shouts of the child who rose full of the enjoyment of his age villefort also rang his new valet brought him the papers and with them a cup of chocolate what are you bringing me said he a cup of chocolate i did not ask for it who has paid me this attention my mistress sir she said you would have to speak a great deal in the murder case and that you should take something to keep up your strength and the valet placed the cup on the table nearest to the sofa which was like all the rest covered with papers the valet then left the room villefort looked for an instant with a gloomy expression then suddenly taking it up with a nervous motion he swallowed its contents at one draught it might have been thought that he hoped the beverage would be mortal and that he sought for death to deliver him from a duty which he would rather die than fulfil he then rose and paced his room with a smile it would have been terrible to witness the chocolate was inoffensive for monsieur de villefort felt no effects the breakfast hour arrived but monsieur de villefort was not at table the valet re-entered madame de villefort wishes to remind you sir he said that eleven o'clock has just struck and that the trial commences at twelve well 
said Villefort. "'What then?' "'Madame de Villefort is dressed. "'She is quite ready, and wishes to know if she is to accompany you, sir.' "'Where to?' "'To the palais.' "'What to do?' "'My mistress wishes much to be present at the trial.' "'Ah!' said Villefort, with a startling accent. "'Does she wish that?' The man drew back and said, "'If you wish to go alone, sir, I will go and tell my mistress.' Villefort remained silent for a moment, and dented his pale cheeks with his nails. "'Tell your mistress,' he at length answered, "'that I wish to speak to her, and I beg she will wait for me in her own room.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then come to dress and shave me.' "'Directly, sir.' The valet reappeared almost instantly, and, having shaved his master, assisted him to dress entirely in black. When he had finished, he said, "'My mistress said she should expect you, sir, as soon as you had finished dressing.' "'I am going to her.' And Villefort, with his papers under his arm and hat in hand, directed his steps toward the apartment of his wife. At the door he paused for a moment to wipe his damp, pale brow. He then entered the room. Madame de Villefort was sitting on an ottoman, and impatiently turning over the leaves of some newspapers and pamphlets, which young Edward, by way of amusing himself, was tearing to pieces before his mother could finish reading them. She was dressed to go out. Her bonnet was placed beside her on a chair, and her gloves were on her hands. "'Ah, here you are, monsieur,' she said in her naturally calm voice. "'But how pale you are! "'Have you been working all night? "'Why did you not come down to breakfast? "'Well, will you take me, or shall I take Edward?' "'Madame de Villefort had multiplied her questions "'in order to gain one answer. "'But to all her inquiries, "'Monsieur de Villefort remained mute and cold as a statue. "'Edward,' said Villefort, "'fixing an imperious glance on the child, "'go and play in the drawing-room, my dear. "'I wish to speak to your mamma. Madame de Villefort shuddered at the sight of that cold countenance, that resolute tone, and the awfully strange preliminaries. Edward raised his head, looked at his mother, and then, finding that she did not confirm the order, began cutting off the heads of his leaden soldiers. "'Edward!' cried Monsieur de Villefort, so harshly that the child started up from the floor. "'Do you hear me? Go!' The child, unaccustomed to such treatment, arose pale and trembling. It would be difficult to say whether his emotion were caused by fear or passion. His father went up to him, took him in his arms, and kissed his forehead. "'Go,' he said. "'Go, my child.' Edward ran out. Monsieur de Villefort went to the door, which he closed behind the child, and bolted. "'Dear me,' said the young woman, endeavouring to read her husband's inmost thoughts while a smile passed over her countenance, which froze the impassibility of Villefort. "'What is the matter?' "'Madame, where do you keep the poison you generally use?' said the magistrate, without any introduction, placing himself between his wife and the door. Madame de Villefort must have experienced something of the sensation of a bird which, looking up, sees the murderous trap closing over its head. A hoarse, broken tone, which was neither a cry nor a sigh, escaped from her while she became deadly pale. 
monsieur she said i i do not understand you and in her first paroxysm of terror she had raised herself from the sofa in the next stronger very likely than the other she fell down again on the cushions i asked you continued villefort in a perfectly calm tone where you concealed the poison by the aid of which you have killed my father-in-law monsieur de saint meron my mother-in-law madame de saint meron barois and my daughter valentine ah oh, sir exclaimed madame de villefort clasping her hands what do you say it is not for you to interrogate but to answer is it to the judge or to the husband stammered madame de villefort to the judge to the judge madame it was terrible to behold the frightful pallor of that woman the anguish of her look the trembling of her whole frame ah sir she muttered ah sir and this was all you do not answer madame exclaimed the terrible interrogator then he added with a smile yet more terrible than his anger it is true then you do not deny it she moved forward and you cannot deny it added villefort extending his hand towards her as though to seize her in the name of justice you have accomplished these different crimes with impudent address but which could only deceive those whose affections for you blinded them since the death of madame de saint meron i have known that a poisoner lived in my house monsieur d'avrigny warned me of it after the death of barois my suspicions were directed towards an angel those suspicions which even when there is no crime are always alive in my heart but after the death of valentine there has been no doubt in my mind madame and not only in mine but in those of others thus your crime known by two persons suspected by many will soon become public and as i told you just now you no longer speak to the husband but to the judge the young woman hid her face in her hands oh sir she stammered i beseech you do not believe appearances are you then a coward cried villefort in a contemptuous voice but i have always observed that poisoners were cowards can you be a coward you who have the courage to witness the death of two old men and a young girl murdered by you sir sir can you be a coward continued villefort with increasing excitement you who could count one by one the minutes of four death agonies you who have arranged your infernal plans and removed the beverages with a talent and precision almost miraculous have you then who have calculated everything with such nicety have you forgotten to calculate one thing i mean where the revelation of your crimes will lead you to oh it is impossible you must have saved some surer more subtle and deadly poison than any other that you might escape the punishment that you deserve you have done this i hope so at least madame de villefort stretched out her hands and fell on her knees i understand he said you confess 
but a confession made to the judges. A confession made at the last moment, extorted when the crime cannot be denied, diminishes not the punishment inflicted on the guilty. The punishment? exclaimed Madame de Villefort. The punishment, monsieur? Twice you have pronounced that word. Certainly. Did you hope to escape it because you were four times guilty? Did you think the punishment would be withheld because you are the wife of him who pronounces it? No, madame, no. The scaffold awaits the poisoner, whoever she may be, unless, as I just said, the poisoner has taken the precaution of keeping for herself a few drops of her deadliest potion. Madame de Villefort uttered a wild cry, and a hideous and uncontrollable terror spread over her distorted features. "'Oh, do not fear the scaffold, madame,' said the magistrate. "'I will not dishonour you, since that would be dishonour to myself. No, if you have heard me distinctly, you will understand that you are not to die on the scaffold.' "'No, I, I, I do not understand.' "'What do you mean?' stammered the unhappy woman, completely overwhelmed. "'I mean that the wife of the first magistrate in the capital shall not, by her infamy, soil an unblemished name, that she shall not, with one blow, dishonour her husband and her child.' "'No! No! Oh, no!' "'Well, madame,' It will be a laudable action on your part, and I will thank you for it. You will thank me for what? For what you have just said. What did I say? Oh, my brain whirls, I no longer understand anything. Oh, my God, my God! And she rose with her hair dishevelled and her lips foaming. Have you answered the question I put to you on entering the room? "'Where do you keep the poison you generally use, madame?' Madame de Villefort raised her arms to heaven and convulsively struck one hand against the other. "'No! No!' she vociferated. "'No! You cannot wish that!' "'What I do not wish, madame, is that you should perish on the scaffold. Do you understand?' asked Villefort. "'Oh, mercy!' "'Mercy, monsieur!' "'What I require is that justice be done. "'I am on the earth to punish, madame,' he added with a flaming glance. "'Any other woman, were the queen herself, I would send to the executioner. "'But to you I shall be merciful. "'To you I will say, "'Have you not, madame, put aside some of the surest, deadliest, most speedy poison?' "'Oh, pardon me, sir. Let me live.' "'She is cowardly,' said Villefort. "'Reflect that I am your wife.' "'You are a poisoner.' "'In the name of heaven.' "'No.' "'In the name of the love you once bore me.' "'No, no.' "'In the name of our child. Oh, for the sake of our child, let me live.' "'No.' "'No, I tell you, one day, if I allow you to live, you will perhaps kill him, as you have the others.' 
"'Hi! Hi, kill my boy!' cried the distracted mother, rushing toward Villefort. "'Hi! Kill my son!' <laughs> and a frightful demonic laugh finished the sentence, which was lost in a hoarse rattle. Madame de Villefort fell at her husband's feet. He approached her. "'Think of it, madame,' he said. "'If, on my return, justice has not been satisfied, "'I will denounce you with my own mouth "'and arrest you with my own hands.' "'She listened, panting, overwhelmed, crushed. "'Her eye alone lived and glared horribly. "'Do you understand me?' he said. "'I am going down there to pronounce the sentence of death against a murderer.' If I find you alive on my return, you shall sleep tonight in the conciergerie. Madame de Villefort sighed. Her nerves gave way, and she sunk on the carpet. The king's attorney seemed to experience a sensation of pity. He looked upon her less severely, and, bowing to her, said slowly, Farewell, madame. Farewell. That farewell struck Madame de Villefort like the executioner's knife. She fainted. The procureur went out after having double-locked the door. End of chapter 108 Chapter 109 The Assizes The Benedetto Affair, as it was called at the Palais, and by people in general, had produced a tremendous sensation. Frequenting the Café de Paris, the Boulevard de Gand, and the Bois de Boulogne, during his brief career of splendour, the false Cavalcanti had formed a host of acquaintances. The papers had related his various adventures, both as a man of fashion and the galley-slave, and as everyone who had been personally acquainted with Prince Andrea Cavalcanti experienced a lively curiosity in his fate. They all determined to spare no trouble in endeavouring to witness the trial of Monsieur Benedetto for the murder of his comrade in chains. In the eyes of many, Benedetto appeared, if not a victim to, at least an instance of the fallibility of the law. Monsieur Cavalcanti, his father, had been seen in Paris, and it was expected that he would reappear to claim the illustrious outcast. Many, also, who were not aware of the circumstances attending his withdrawal from Paris, were struck with the worthy appearance, the gentlemanly bearing, and the knowledge of the world displayed by the old patrician, who certainly played the nobleman very well, so long as he said nothing, and made no arithmetical calculations. As for the accused himself, many remembered him as being so amiable, so handsome, and so liberal, that they chose to think him the victim of some conspiracy, since in this world large fortunes frequently excite the malevolence and jealousy of some unknown enemy. Every one, therefore, ran to the court, some to witness the sight, others to comment upon it. From seven o'clock in the morning a crowd was stationed at the iron gates, and an hour before the trial commenced the hall was full of the privileged. Before the entrance of the magistrates, and indeed frequently afterwards, a court of justice, on days when some special trial is to take place, resembles a drawing-room where many persons recognize each other and converse, if they can do so, without losing their seats, 
or if they're separated by too great a number of lawyers, communicate by signs. It was one of the magnificent autumn days which made amends for a short summer. The clouds which Monsieur de Villefort had perceived at sunrise had all disappeared as if by magic, and one of the softest and most brilliant days of September shone forth in all its splendour. Beauchamp, one of the kings of the press, and therefore claiming the right of a throne everywhere, was eyeing everybody through his monocle. He perceived Chateaurenaud and de Bray, who had just gained the good graces of a sergeant-at-arms, and who had persuaded the latter to let them stand before, instead of behind him, as they ought to have done. The worthy sergeant had recognised the minister's secretary and the millionaire, and by the way of paying extra attention to his noble neighbours, promised to keep their places while they paid a visit to Beauchamp. "'Well,' said Beauchamp, "'we shall see our friend.' "'Yes, indeed,' replied Debray. "'That worthy prince. Deuce take those Italian princes. A man, too, who could boast of Dante for a genealogist, and could reckon back to the divine comedy.' "'A nobility of the rope,' said Chateau Renaud phlegmatically. "'He will be condemned, will he not?' asked Debray of Beauchamp. "'My dear fellow, I think we should ask you that question.' "'You know such news much better than we do. "'Did you see the President at the minister's last night?' "'Yes. "'What did he say?' "'Something which will surprise you.' "'Oh, make haste and tell me, then it is a long time since that has happened.' "'Well, he told me that Benedetto, "'who is considered a serpent of subtlety and a giant of cunning, is really but a very commonplace, silly rascal, and altogether unworthy of the experiments that will be made on his phrenological organs after his death. Bah! said Beauchamp. He played the prince very well. Yes, for you who detest those unhappy princes, Beauchamp, and are always delighted to find fault with them, but not for me, who discover a gentleman by instinct, and who sent out an aristocratic family like a very bloodhound of heraldry. Then you have never believed in the principality? Yes, in the principality, but not in the prince. Not so bad, said Beauchamp. Still, I assure you, he passed very well with many people. I saw him at the minister's house. Ah, oh, yes, said Chateau Renaud. The idea of thinking ministers understand anything about princes. "'There is something in what you have just said,' said Beauchamp, laughing. "'But,' said Debray to Beauchamp, "'if I spoke to the President, you must have been with the Procureur.' "'It was an impossibility. "'For the last week Monsieur de Villefort has secluded himself. "'It is natural enough. "'This strange chain of domestic afflictions, "'followed by the no less strange death of his daughter.' "'Strange?' "'What do you mean, Beauchamp?' "'Oh, yes. "'Do you pretend that all this has been unobserved at the minister's?' "'said Beauchamp, placing his eyeglass in his eye, "'where he tried to make it remain. "'My dear sir,' said Chateau Renaud, "'allow me to tell you that you do not understand "'that manoeuvre with the eyeglass half so well as Debray. "'Give him a lesson, Debray.' "'Stay,' said Beauchamp. "'Surely I am not deceived.' "'What is it?' "'It is she,' 
"'Whom do you mean?' "'They said she had left.' "'Mademoiselle Eugenie?' said Chateau Renaud. "'Has she returned?' "'No, but her mother.' "'Madame Danglars?' "'Nonsense! Impossible!' said Chateau Renaud. "'Only ten days after the flight of her daughter, "'and three days from the bankruptcy of her husband.' Debray coloured slightly, and followed with his eyes the direction of Beauchamp's glance. "'Come,' he said, "'it is only a veiled lady, some foreign princess, perhaps the mother of Cavalcanti. But you are just speaking on a very interesting topic, Beauchamp.' "'I?' "'Yes, you were telling us about the extraordinary death of Valentine.' "'Ah, yes, so I was. But how is it that Madame de Villefort is not here?' "'Poor dear woman,' said Debray. "'She is in no doubt occupied in distilling balm for the hospitals "'or in making cosmetics for herself or friends. "'Do you know she spends two or three thousand crowns a year in this amusement? "'But I wonder she is not here. "'I should have been pleased to see her, for I like her very much.' "'And I hate her,' said Chateau Renaud. "'Why?' "'I do not know. Why do we love?' "'Why do we hate? I detest her from antipathy. "'Or rather by instinct. "'Perhaps so. "'But to return to what you were saying, Beauchamp. "'Well, do you know why they die so multitudinously at Monsieur de Villefort's?' "'Multitudinously is good,' said Chateau Renaud. "'My good fellow, you'll find the word in Saint-Simon. "'But the thing itself is at Monsieur de Villefort's. "'But let's get back to the subject.' "'Talking of that,' said de Bray, "'Madame was making inquiries about that house, "'which for the last three months has been hung with black.' "'Who is Madame?' asked Chateau Renaud. "'The minister's wife, pardieu. "'Oh, your pardon. "'I never visit ministers. "'I leave that to the princes.' "'Really? "'You were only before sparkling, but now you are brilliant.' "'Take compassion on us, or, like Jupiter, you will wither us up.' "'I will not speak again,' said Chateau Renaud. "'Pray have compassion upon me, and do not take up every word I say. "'Come, let us endeavour to get to the end of our story, Beauchamp. "'I told you that yesterday Madame made inquiries of me upon the subject. "'Enlighten me, and I will then communicate my information to her.' "'Well, gentlemen,' "'The reason people die so multitudinously—I like the word—at Monsieur de Villefort's is that there is an assassin in the house.' The two young men shuddered, for the same idea had more than once occurred to them. "'And who is the assassin?' they asked together. "'Young Edward!' A burst of laughter from the auditors did not in the least disconcert the speaker, who continued, "'Yes, gentlemen,' "'Edward, the infant phenomenon, who is quite an adept in the art of killing.' "'You are jesting.' "'Not at all. I yesterday engaged a servant who had just left Monsieur de Villefort. I intend sending him away to-morrow, for he eats so enormously to make up for the fast imposed upon him by his terror in that house. Well, now listen.' "'We are listening.' "'It appears the dear child has obtained possession of a bottle containing some drug, 
which he every now and then uses against those who have displeased him. First, Monsieur and Madame de Saint-Méran incurred his displeasure. So he poured out three drops of this elixir. Three drops were sufficient. Then followed Barrois, the old servant of Monsieur Noirtier, who sometimes rebuffed this little wretch. He therefore received the same quantity of the elixir. The same happened to Valentine, of whom he was jealous. He gave her the same dose as the others, and all was over for her as well as the rest. "'Why, what nonsense are you telling us?' said Chateau Renaud. "'Yes, it is an extraordinary story,' said Beauchamp. "'Is it not?' "'It is absurd,' said Debray. "'Ah,' said Beauchamp, "'you doubt me. "'Well, you can ask my servant, "'or rather him who will no longer be my servant to-morrow. "'It was the talk of the house. "'And this elixir, where is it? "'What is it?' "'The child conceals it. "'But where did he find it?' "'In his mother's laboratory.' "'Does his mother, then, keep poisons in her laboratory?' "'How can I tell? "'You are questioning me like a king's attorney. "'I only repeat what I have been told. "'And like my informant, I can do no more. "'The poor devil would eat nothing from fear.' "'It is incredible.' "'No, my dear fellow, it is not at all incredible.' "'You saw the child pass through the Rue Richelieu last year, "'who amused himself with killing his brothers and sisters "'by sticking pins in their ears while they slept. "'The generation who follow us are very precocious.' "'Come, Beauchamp,' said Chateau Renaud, "'I will bet anything you do not believe a word "'of all you have been telling us.' "'I do not see the Count of Monte Cristo here.' "'He is worn out,' said Debray. Besides, he could not well appear in public, since he has been the dupe of the Cavalcanti, who, it appears, presented themselves to him with false letters of credit, and cheated him out of one hundred thousand francs upon the hypothesis of this principality. "'By the way, Monsieur de Chateaurenaud, asked Beauchamp, "'how is Morel?' "'Ma foi! I've called him three times without once seeing him. Still,' His sister did not seem uneasy, and told me that though she had not seen him for two or three days, she was sure he was well. "'Ah, now I think of it. The Count of Monte Cristo cannot appear in the hall,' said Beauchamp. "'Why not?' "'Because he is an actor in the drama.' "'Has he assassinated anyone, then?' "'No, on the contrary. They wish to assassinate him.' "'You know that it was in leaving his house "'that Monsieur de Caderousse was murdered by his friend Benedetto. "'You know that the famous waistcoat was found in his house "'containing the letter which stopped the signature of the marriage contract. "'Do you see the waistcoat? "'There it is, all blood-stained on the desk as a testimony of the crime. "'Ah, very good. "'Hush, gentlemen, here is the court. "'Let us go back to our places.' A noise was heard in the hall. The sergeant called his two patrons with an energetic, Hum! And the doorkeeper, appearing, called out with that shrill voice peculiar to his order, ever since the days of Beaumarchais, The court! Gentlemen! End of chapter 109 Chapter 110
the indictment the judges took their places in the midst of the most profound silence the jury took their seats monsieur de villefort the object of unusual attention and we had almost said of general admiration sat in the armchair and cast a tranquil glance around him everyone looked with astonishment on that grave and severe face whose calm expression personal griefs had been unable to disturb and the aspect of a man who was a stranger to all human emotions excited something very like terror gendarme said the president lead in the accused at these words the public attention became more intense and all eyes were turned towards the door through which benedetto was to enter the door soon opened and the accused appeared the same impression was experienced by all present and no one was deceived by the expression of his countenance his features bore no sign of that deep emotion which stops the beating of the heart and blanches the cheek his hands gracefully placed one upon his hat the other in the opening of his white waistcoat were not at all tremulous his eye was calm and even brilliant scarcely had he entered the hall when he glanced at the whole body of magistrates and assistants his eye rested longer on the president and still more so on the king's attorney by the side of andrea was stationed the lawyer who was to conduct his defence and who had been appointed by the court for andrea disdained to pay any attention to those details to which he appeared to attach no importance the lawyer was a young man with light hair whose face expressed a hundred times more emotion than that which characterized the prisoner the president called for the indictment revised as we know by the clever and implacable pen of villefort during the reading of this which was long the public attention was continually drawn towards andrea who bore the inspection with spartan unconcern villefort had never been so concise and eloquent the crime was depicted in the most vivid colors the former life of the prisoner his transformation a review of his life from the earliest period was set forth with all the talent that a knowledge of human life could furnish to a mind like that of the procureur benedetto was thus forever condemned in public opinion before the sentence of the law could be pronounced andrea paid no attention to the successive charges which were brought against him monsieur de villefort who examined him attentively and who no doubt practised upon him all the psychological studies he was accustomed to use in vain endeavoured to make him lower his eyes notwithstanding the depth and profundity of his gaze at length the reading of the indictment was ended accused said the president your name and surname andrea arose excuse me mr president he said in a clear voice but i see you are going to adopt a course of questions through which i cannot follow you i have an idea which i will explain by and by of making an exception to the usual form of accusation allow me then if you please to answer in different order or i will not do so at all the astonished president looked at the jury who in turn looked at villefort the whole assembly manifested great surprise but andrea appeared quite unmoved your age said the president you will answer that question i will answer that question as well as the rest mr president but in its turn 
"'Your age?' repeated the President. "'I am twenty-one years old, or rather I shall be in a few days, as I was born the night of the twenty-seventh of September, eighteen seventeen. Monsieur de Villefort, who was busy taking down some notes, raised his head at the mention of this date. "'Where were you born?' continued the President. "'At Auteuil, near Paris.' Monsieur de Villefort, a second time, raised his head, looked at Benedetto as if he had been gazing at the head of Medusa, and became livid. As for Benedetto, he gracefully wiped his lips with a fine cambric pocket-handkerchief. "'Your profession?' First, I was a forger,' answered Andrea, as calmly as possible. "'Then I became a thief, and lately have become an assassin.' A murmur or rather storm of indignation burst from all parts of the assembly. The judges themselves appeared to be stupefied, and the jury manifested tokens of disgust for cynicism so unexpected in a man of fashion. Monsieur de Villefort pressed his hand upon his brow, which at first pale had become red and burning. Then he suddenly arose and looked around as though he had lost his senses. He wanted air. "'Are you looking for anything, Monsieur Procureur?' asked Benedetto, with his most ingratiating smile. Monsieur de Villefort answered nothing, but sat, or rather threw himself down again upon his chair. "'And now, prisoner, you will consent to tell your name,' said the President. "'The brutal affectation with which you have enumerated and classified your crimes,' calls for a severe reprimand on the part of the court, both in the name of morality and for the respect due to humanity. You appear to consider this a point of honour, and it may be for this reason that you have delayed acknowledging your name. You wished it to be preceded by all these titles. It is quite wonderful, Mr. President, how entirely you have read my thoughts said Benedetto, in his softest voice and most polite manner. "'This is, indeed, the reason why I begged you to alter the order of the questions.' The public astonishment had reached its height. There was no longer any deceit or bravado in the manner of the accused. The audience felt that a startling revelation was to follow this ominous prelude. "'Well,' said the President, "'your name?' "'I cannot tell you my name.' since I do not know it, but I know my father's, and can tell it to you. A painful giddiness overwhelmed Villefort. Great drops of acrid sweat fell from his face upon the papers which he held in his convulsed hand. "'Repeat your father's name,' said the President. Not a whisper, not a breath was heard in that vast assembly. Everyone waited anxiously. "'My father is King's Attorney,' replied Andrea calmly. "'King's Attorney?' said the President, stupefied, and without noticing the agitation which spread over the face of Monsieur de Villefort. "'King's Attorney?' "'Yes, and if you wish to know his name, I will tell you it. He is named Villefort.' The explosion, which had been so long restrained from a feeling of respect to the court of justice, now burst forth like thunder from the breasts of all present. 
the court itself did not seek to restrain the feelings of the audience the exclamations the insults addressed to benedetto who remained perfectly unconcerned the energetic gestures the movement of the gendarme the sneers of the scum of the crowd always sure to rise to the surface in case of any disturbance all this lasted five minutes before the doorkeepers and magistrates were able to restore silence in the midst of this tumult the voice of the president was heard to exclaim are you playing with justice accused and do you dare set your fellow citizens an example of disorder which even these times has never been equalled several persons hurried up to monsieur de villefort who sat half bowed over in his chair offering him consolation encouragement and protestations of zeal and sympathy order was re-established in the hall except that a few people still moved about and whispered to one another a lady it was said had just fainted they had supplied her with a smelling bottle and she had recovered during the scene of tumult andrea had turned his smiling face towards the assembly then leaning with one hand on the oaken rail of the dock in the most graceful attitude possible he said gentlemen i assure you i had no idea of insulting the court or of making a useless disturbance in the presence of this honourable assembly they ask my age i tell it they ask where i was born i answer they ask my name i cannot give it since my parents abandoned me but though i cannot give my own name not possessing one i can tell them my father's now i repeat my father is named monsieur de villefort and i am ready to prove it there was an energy a conviction and a sincerity in the manner of the young man which silenced the tumult all eyes were turned for a moment towards the procureur who sat as motionless as though a thunderbolt had changed him into a corpse gentlemen said andrea commanding silence by his voice and manner i owe you the proofs and explanations of what i have said but said the irritated president you called yourself benedetto declared yourself an orphan and claimed corsica as your country i said anything i pleased in order that the solemn declaration i have just made should not be withheld which otherwise would certainly have been the case i now repeat that i was born at auteuil on the night of the twenty-seventh of september eighteen seventeen and that i am the son of the procureur monsieur de villefort do you wish for any further details i will give them i was born in number twenty-eight rue de la fontaine in a room hung with red damask my father took me in his arms telling my mother i was dead wrapped me in a napkin marked with an h and an n and carried me into a garden where he buried me alive a shudder ran through the assembly when they saw that the confidence of the prisoner increased in proportion to the terror of monsieur de villefort but how have you become acquainted with all these details asked the president i will tell you mr president a man who had sworn vengeance against my father and had long watched his opportunity to kill him had introduced himself that night into the garden in which my father buried me he was concealed in a thicket he saw my father bury something in the ground and stabbed him 
Then, thinking the deposit might contain some treasure, he turned up the ground, and found me still living. The man carried me to the foundling asylum, where I was registered under the number thirty-seven. Three months afterwards, a woman travelling from Rogliano to Paris to fetch me, and having claimed me as her son, carried me away. Thus, you see, though born in Paris, I was brought up in Corsica. There was a moment's silence, during which one could have fancied the hall empty, so profound was the stillness. Proceed, said the President. Certainly I might have lived happily amongst those good people who adored me, but my perverse disposition prevailed over the virtues which my adopted mother endeavoured to instil into my heart. I increased in wickedness till I committed crime. One day, when I cursed Providence for making me so wicked and ordaining me to such a fate, my adopted father said to me, "'Do not blaspheme, unhappy child.' The crime is that of your father, not yours. Of your father, who consigned you to hell if you died, and to misery if a miracle preserved you alive. After that I ceased to blaspheme, but I cursed my father. That is why I have uttered the words for which you blame me. That is why I have filled this whole assembly with horror. I have committed an additional crime. Punish me. But if you will allow that ever since the day of my birth, my fate has been sad, bitter, and lamentable, then pity me. But your mother? asked the President. My mother thought me dead. She is not guilty. I did not even wish to know her name, nor do I know it. Just then a piercing cry, ending in a sob, burst from the centre of the crowd, who encircled the lady who had before fainted, and who now fell into a violent fit of hysterics. She was carried out of the hall, the thick veil which concealed her face dropped off, and Madame Danglars was recognized. Notwithstanding his shattered nerves, the ringing sensation in his ears, and the madness which turned his brain, Villefort rose as he perceived her. "'The proofs! The proofs!' said the President. "'Remember, this tissue of horrors must be supported by the clearest proofs.' "'The proofs,' said Benedetto, laughing. <laughs> "'Do you want the proofs?' "'Yes.' "'Well, then, look at Monsieur de Villefort, and then ask me for proofs.' Everyone turned towards the procureur, who, unable to bear the universal gaze now riveted on him alone, advanced staggering into the midst of the tribunal with his hair dishevelled, and his face indented with the mark of his nails. The whole assembly uttered a long murmur of astonishment. "'Father,' said Benedetto, "'I am asked for proofs. Do you wish me to give them?' "'No, no, it, it is useless,' stammered Monsieur de Villefort in a hoarse voice. "'No, it is useless.' "'How useless!' cried the President. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that I feel it impossible to struggle against this deadly weight which crushes me. "'Gentlemen, I know I am in the hands of an avenging God. "'We need no proofs. "'Everything relating to this young man is true.' 
a dull gloomy silence like that which precedes some awful phenomenon of nature pervaded the assembly who shuddered in dismay what monsieur de villefort cried the president do you yield to an hallucination what are you no longer in possession of your senses this strange unexpected terrible accusation has disordered your reason come recover the procureur dropped his head his teeth chattered like those of a man under a violent attack of fever and yet he was deadly pale i am in possession of all my senses sir he said my body alone suffers as you may suppose i acknowledge myself guilty of all the young man has brought against me and from this hour hold myself under the authority of the procureur who will succeed me and as he spoke these words with a hoarse choking voice he staggered towards the door which was mechanically opened by a doorkeeper the whole assembly were dumb with astonishment at the revelation and confession which had produced a catastrophe so different from that which had been expected during the last fortnight by the parisian world well said beauchamp let them now say that drama is unnatural ma foi said chateau renaud i would rather end my career like monsieur de morcerf a pistol shot seems quite delightful compared with this catastrophe and moreover it kills said beauchamp and to think i had an idea of marrying his daughter said debray she did well to die poor girl the sitting is adjourned gentlemen said the president fresh inquiries will be made and the case will be tried next session by another magistrate as for andrea who was calm and more interesting than ever he left the hall escorted by gendarme who involuntarily paid him some attention well what do you think of this my fine fellow asked debray of the sergeant-at-arms slipping a louis into his hand there will be extenuating circumstance he replied end of chapter 110 chapter 111 expiation notwithstanding the density of the crowd monsieur de villefort saw it open before him there is something so awe-inspiring in great afflictions that even in the worst times the first emotion of a crowd has generally been to sympathize with the sufferer in a great catastrophe many people have been assassinated in a tumult but even criminals have rarely been insulted during trial thus villefort passed through the mass of spectators and officers of the palais and withdrew though he had acknowledged his guilt he was protected by his grief there are some situations which men understand by instinct but which reason is powerless to explain in such cases the greatest poet is he who gives utterance to the most natural and vehement outburst of sorrow those who hear the bitter cry are as much impressed as if they listened to an entire poem and when the sufferer is sincere they are right in regarding his outburst as sublime it would be difficult to describe the state of stupor in which villefort left the palais every pulse beat with feverish excitement every nerve was strained every vein swollen and every part of his body seemed to suffer distinctly from the rest 
thus multiplying his agony a thousandfold. He made his way along the corridors through force of habit. He threw aside his magisterial robe, not out of deference to etiquette, but because it was an unbearable burden, a veritable garb of Nessus, insatiate in torture. Having staggered as far as the Rue Dauphine, he perceived his carriage, awoke his sleeping coachman by opening the door himself, threw himself on the cushions and pointed towards the Faubourg Saint-Honoré. The garage drove on. The weight of his fallen fortune seemed suddenly to crush him. He could not foresee the consequences. He could not contemplate the future with the indifference of the hardened criminal who merely faces a contingency already familiar. God was still in his heart. God, he murmured, not knowing what he said. God, God. Behind the event that had overwhelmed him, he saw the hand of God. The carriage rolled rapidly onward. Villefort, while turning restlessly on the cushions, felt something press against him. He put out his hand to remove the object. It was a fan which Madame de Villefort had left in the carriage. This fan awakened a recollection which darted through his mind like lightning. He thought of his wife. Oh! he exclaimed as though a red-hot iron were piercing his heart. During the last hour his own crime had alone been presented to his mind. Now another object, not less terrible, suddenly presented itself. His wife! He had just acted the inexorable judge with her. He had condemned her to death, and she, crushed by remorse, struck with terror, covered with the shame inspired by the eloquence of his irreproachable virtue, she, a poor, weak woman, without help or the power of defending herself against his absolute and supreme will, she might at that very moment perhaps be preparing to die. An hour had elapsed since her condemnation. At that moment, doubtless, she was recalling all her crimes to her memory. She was asking pardon for her sins. Perhaps she was even writing a letter, imploring forgiveness from her virtuous husband, a forgiveness she was purchasing with her death. Villefort again groaned with anguish and despair. Ah! Oh, he exclaimed, that woman became criminal only from associating with me. I carried the infection of crime with me, and she has caught it as she would the typhus fever, the cholera, the plague, and yet I have punished her. I have dared to tell her I have repent and die. But no, she must not die. She shall live, and with me. We will flee from Paris, and go as far as the earth reaches. I told her of the scaffold. Oh, heavens! I forgot that it awaits me also. How could I pronounce that word? Yes, we will fly. I will confess all to her. I will tell her daily that I also have committed a crime. Oh, what an alliance! The tiger and the serpent! Worthy wife of such as I am! She must live that my infamy may diminish hers. And Villefort dashed upon the window in front of the carriage. Faster, faster, he cried, in a tone which electrified the coachman. The horses, impelled by fear, flew towards the house. Yes, yes, repeated Villefort as he approached the home. Yes, that woman must live. She must repent and educate my son, the sole survivor, with the exception of the indestructible old man, of the wreck of my house.
She loves him. It was for his sake she has committed these crimes. We ought never to despair of softening the heart of a mother who loves her child. She will repent, and no one will know that she has been guilty. The events which have taken place in my house, though they now occupy the public mind, will be forgotten in time, or if, indeed, a few enemies should persist in remembering them, why then, I will add them to my list of crimes. What will it signify if one, two, or three more are added? My wife and child shall escape from this gulf, carrying treasures with them. She will live and may yet be happy, since her child, in whom all her love is centred, will be with her. I shall have performed a good action, and my heart will be lighter." and the procureur breathed more freely than he had done for some time. The carriage stopped at the door of the house. Villefort leapt out of the carriage and saw that his servants were surprised at his early return. He could read no other expression in their features. Neither of them spoke to him. They merely stood aside to let him pass by as usual, nothing more. As he passed by Monsieur Noirtier's room, he perceived two figures through the half-open door, but he experienced no curiosity to know who was visiting his father. Anxiety carried him on further. "'Come,' he said as he ascended the stairs leading to his wife's room. "'Nothing is changed here.' He then closed the door of the landing. "'No one must disturb us,' he said. "'I must speak freely to her, accuse myself, and say—' He approached the door— "'touched the crystal handle which yielded to his hand. "'Not locked?' he cried. "'That is well.' "'And he entered the little room in which Edward slept, "'for though the child went to school during the day, "'his mother could not allow him to be separated from her at night. "'With a single glance, Villefort's eye ran through the room. "'Not here,' he said. "'Doubtless she is in her bedroom.' "'He rushed towards the door, found it bolted.' and stopped, shuddering. "'Eloise!' he cried. He fancied he heard the sound of a piece of furniture being removed. "'Eloise!' he repeated. "'Who is there?' answered the voice of her he sought. He thought that voice more feeble than usual. "'Open the door!' cried Villefort. "'Open! It is I!' But notwithstanding this request— Notwithstanding the tone of anguish in which it was uttered, the door remained closed. Villefort burst it open with a violent blow. At the entrance of the room which led to her boudoir, Madame de Villefort was standing erect, pale, her features contracted and her eyes glaring horribly. "'Héloise! Héloise!' he said. "'What is the matter? Speak!' The young woman extended her stiff white hands towards him. "'It is done, monsieur,' she said with a rattling noise which seemed to tear her throat. "'What more do you want?' And she fell full length on the floor. Villefort ran to her and seized her hand, which convulsively clasped a crystal bottle with a golden stopper. Madame de Villefort was dead. Villefort maddened with horror stepped back to the threshold of the door fixing his eyes on the corpse my son he exclaimed suddenly where is my son edward edward and he rushed out of the room still crying edward edward the name was pronounced in such a tone of anguish 
that the servants ran up. "'Where is my son?' asked Villefort. "'Let him be removed from the house, that he may not see—' "'Master Edward is not downstairs, sir,' replied the valet. "'Then he must be playing in the garden. Go and see.' "'No, sir. Madame de Villefort sent for him half an hour ago. He went into her room and has not been downstairs since.' A cold perspiration burst out on Villefort's brow. His legs trembled, and his thoughts flew about madly in his brain like the wheels of a disordered watch. "'In Madame de Villefort's room?' he murmured and slowly returned, with one hand wiping his forehead, and with the other supporting himself against the wall. To enter the room he must again see the body of his unfortunate wife. "'To call Edward!' He must reawaken the echo of that room which now appeared like a sepulchre. To speak seemed like violating the silence of the tomb. His tongue was paralyzed in his mouth. Ed Edward, he stammered. Edward. The child did not answer. Where then could he be? If he had entered his mother's room and not since returned. He stepped forward. The corpse of Madame de Villefort was stretched across the doorway leading to the room in which Edward must be. Those glaring eyes seemed to watch over the threshold, and the lips bore the stamp of a terrible and mysterious irony. Through the open door was visible a portion of the boudoir containing an upright piano and a blue satin couch. Villefort stepped forward two or three paces and beheld his child lying, no doubt asleep, on the sofa. The unhappy man uttered an exclamation of joy. A ray of light seemed to penetrate the abyss of despair and darkness. He had only to step over the corpse, enter the boudoir, take the child in his arms, and flee far, far away. Villefort was no longer the civilized man. He was a tiger hurt unto death, gnashing his teeth in his wound, he no longer feared realities but phantoms. He leapt over the corpse as if it had been burning brazier. He took the child in his arms, embraced him, shook him, called him. But the child made no response. He pressed his burning lips to the cheeks, but they were icy cold and pale. He felt the stiffened limbs. He pressed his hand upon the heart, but it no longer beat. The child was dead. A folded paper fell from Edward's breast. Villefort, thunderstruck, fell upon his knees. The child dropped from his arms and rolled on the floor by the side of its mother. He picked up the paper and, recognizing his wife's writing, ran his eyes rapidly over its contents. It ran as follows. You know that I was a good mother. Since it was for my son's sake, I became a criminal. A good mother cannot depart without her son. Villefort could not believe his eyes. He could not believe his reason. He dragged himself towards the child's body and examined it as a lioness contemplates its dead cub. Then a piercing cry escaped from his breast, and he cried, Still the hand of God! The presence of the two victims alarmed him. He couldn't bear solitude shared only by two corpses. Until then, he had been sustained by rage, by
by his strength of mind, by despair, by the supreme agony which led the Titans to scale the heavens and Ajax to defy the gods. He now arose, his head bowed beneath the weight of grief, and shaking his damp, dishevelled hair, he who had never felt compassion for any one determined to seek his father, that he might have some one to whom he could relate his misfortunes, some one by whose side he might weep. He descended the little staircase with which we are acquainted, and entered Noirtier's room. The old man appeared to be listening attentively, and as affectionately as his infirmities would allow, to the Abbe Boussoni, who looked cold and calm as usual. Villefort, perceiving the Abbe, passed his hand across his brow. He recollected the call he had made upon him after the dinner at Auteuil, and then the visit the Abbe had himself paid to his house on the day of Valentine's death. "'You here, sir!' he exclaimed. "'Do you, then, never appear but to act as an escort to death?' Busoni turned around, and perceiving the excitement depicted on the magistrate's face, the savage luster of his eyes, he understood that the revelation had been made at the Assizes. But beyond this he was ignorant. "'I came to pray over the body of your daughter.' "'And now, why are you here?' "'I come to tell you that you have sufficiently repaid your debt, and that from this moment I will pray to God to forgive you, as I do.' "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Villefort, stepping back fearfully. "'Surely that is not the voice of the Abbe Boussoni.' "'No,' the Abbe threw off his wig, shook his head, and his hair no longer confined, fell in black masses around his manly face. "'It is the face of the Count of Monte Cristo!' exclaimed the procureur, with a haggard expression. "'You are not exactly right, Monsieur Procureur. You must go farther back.' "'That voice! That voice! Where did I first hear it?' "'You heard it for the first time at Marseilles, twenty-three years ago, "'the day of your marriage with Mademoiselle de Saint-Méran. "'Refer to your papers.' "'You are not Boussoni? You are not Monte Cristo? "'Oh, heavens! You are then some secret, implacable and mortal enemy. "'I must have wronged you in some way at Marseilles. Oh, woe to me!' "'Yes.' "'You are now on the right path,' said the Count, crossing his arms over his broad chest. "'Search! Search!' "'But what have I done to you?' exclaimed Villefort, whose mind was balancing between reason and insanity. "'In that cloud which is neither a dream nor reality. "'What have I done to you? Tell me, then, speak!' "'You condemned me to a horrible, tedious death.' "'You killed my father. "'You deprived me of liberty, of love and happiness. "'Who are you, then? "'Who are you?' "'I am the spectre of a wretch "'you buried in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. "'God gave that spectre the form of the Count of Monte Cristo "'when he at length issued from his tomb, "'enriched him with gold and diamonds, "'and led him to you.' "'Ah! I recognize you! I recognize you!' exclaimed the king's attorney. 
"'You are—' "'I am Edmond Dante.' "'You are Edmond Dante,' cried Villefort, seizing the Count by the wrist. "'Then come here.' And up the stairs he dragged Monte Cristo, who, ignorant of what had happened, followed him in astonishment, foreseeing some new catastrophe. "'There, Edmond Dante,' he said, pointing to the bodies of his wife and child. "'See, are you well avenged?' Monte Cristo became pale at this horrible sight. He felt that he had passed beyond the bounds of vengeance, and that he could no longer say, "'God is for and with me.' With an expression of indescribable anguish he threw himself upon the body of the child, reopened its eyes, felt its pulse, and then rushed with him into Valentine's room, of which he double-locked the door. "'My child!' cried Villefort. He carries away the body of my child. Oh, curses! Woe! Death to you! And he tried to follow Monte Cristo, but as though in a dream he was transfixed to the spot. His eyes glared as though they were starting through the sockets. He gripped the flesh on his chest until his nails were stained with blood. The veins of his temples swelled and boiled as though they would burst their narrow boundary and deluge his brain with living fire. This lasted several minutes, until the frightful overturn of reason was accomplished. Then, uttering a loud cry, followed by a burst of laughter, he rushed down the stairs. A quarter of an hour afterwards, the door of Valentine's room opened, and Monte Cristo reappeared. Pale, with a dull eye and heavy heart, all the noble features of that face, usually so calm and serene, were overcast by grief. In his arms he held the child, whom no skill had been able to recall to life. Bending on one knee, he placed it reverently by the side of its mother, with its head upon her breast. Then rising he went out, and meeting a servant on the stairs, he asked, "'Where is Monsieur de Villefort?' The servant, instead of answering, pointed to the garden. Monte Cristo ran down the steps, and advancing towards the spot designated, beheld Villefort, encircled by his servants, with a spade in his hand, and digging the earth with fury. "'It is not here!' he cried. "'It is not here!' And then he moved farther on, and began again to dig. Monte Cristo approached him, and said, in a low voice, with an expression almost humble, "'Sir!' "'You have indeed lost a son, but—' Villefort interrupted him. He had neither listened nor heard. "'Oh, I will find it!' he cried. "'You may pretend he is not here, but I will find him, though I dig forever.' Monte Cristo drew back in horror. "'Oh,' he said, "'he is mad.' And as though he feared that the walls of the accursed house would crumble around him, he rushed into the street— for the first time doubting whether he had the right to do as he had done. "'Oh, enough of this! Enough of this!' he cried. "'Let me save the last!' On entering his house he met Morel, who wandered about like a ghost awaiting the heavenly mandate for return to the tomb. "'Prepare yourself, Maximilian,' he said with a smile. "'We leave Paris to-morrow.' "'Have you nothing more to do there?' asked Morel. "'No,' replied Monte Cristo. God grant I may not have done too much already.' 
The next day they indeed left, accompanied only by Baptistin. Haiti had taken away Ali, and Bertuccio remained with Noirtier. End of chapter 111 And now you say why I said it was good that we had a moment to remember the Count doubting a little bit of what he had wrought last week when he was unsure of whether he could do anything more for Mercedes and Albert because this was coming. I found it fascinating that his vengeance had a limit. And having already seen him thrown a bit last week, to see him really unnerved by what happened with Edward, I couldn't tell how upset or if upset at all uh, he, he was about Madame Viafort. I, I think kind of not upset. She needed to go before she killed again. But Edward, although obnoxious, was an innocent. And Edmund had been an innocent. I also thought how amazingly cinematic that moment was where the Count reveals himself to Viafort, and it's this big moment that we've been waiting for and that the Count has been waiting for. And he he makes his grand appearance, and Viafort has a hard time placing him, not surprisingly. And then when it all falls into place and the, the pieces start clicking. When Vifor grabbed his arm and ran with him, that image of the Count being completely discombobulated by this. It, why is he doing this? Where are we going? I, I, the Count of Monte Cristo, am surprised. This is such an odd feeling. Where did, where did this come from? And of course, we know where he's getting taken to. It's a beautiful piece of writing, dramatically speaking, on Alexandre Dumas' part. But I thought just the grand total of these four chapters had some extraordinary writing in it as well, because he, he took us from those scenes in the beginning between Viefort, the looks between Viefort and Watier, and the scene between Viefort and his wife, and the, the righteous outrage that he has, and then the assizes and all the fun. And the big reveal from Cavalcante, from Benedetto. And, and it's just extraordinary how much got packed into these four chapters. And then the whole carriage ride home with Viafor talking to himself and already slowly unhinging himself as he goes. And then the, the whole scene with his wife. And we, correct me if I'm wrong, but we knew Edward wasn't just taking a nap when he got home, right? You knew that. You saw it coming. And then, oh, oh, and then for the Count to go and, and lock himself in the room and try to revive little Edward. And as obnoxious as that kid was, it's impossible not to have your heart broken. And now, now what does the Count do? I mean, he's, he's gotten Caderousse. He's gotten Fernand. He's He's sure done got Viafor now. Denglar ran away. Denglar's wife is a ruin, a beautiful ruin. And we just finished chapter 111. There's only 117 chapters in the book. So we've got six more chapters. I don't know what's going to happen. I guess you're going to have to tune in next week and find out.
Because the thing that I think is kind of stunning in the the storytelling part of, of where we're at is right now we should feel not necessarily relieved, but sated. It's like, ah, he finally got all the bad guys. And I don't know about you, but I'm not feeling that way. And it's interesting because we're having a parallel thing happening in The Wizard of Oz. In The Wizard of Oz, the book, the death of the Wicked Witch is midway through the book. And Baum did that for some very, very specific reasons, which we're going to talk about this week's episode, episode 12 of The Wizard of Oz. The movie is is fairly classic. You know, the the killing of the Wicked Witch, the tossing the water on her, all of that. That's the climax. It isn't really in the book. And here it's hard not to feel like, wow, six chapters, six chapters for Dumas, just like six chapters for Dickens is not nothing. A lot can happen. A lot of real estate can be taken up in those six chapters. You can have quite a few pages. So we're going to have to, uh, we're just going to have to stick around and see what, what comes next from old Alexandre. <laughs> and over on Brave New Podcast, uh, Justin and I are about to get into the big reveal of what Orwell has been up to in creating this society, because he, he makes it fairly transparent midway through the book, what's going on in his mind. And you can see why he felt the need to write this. And speaking of, Thing One discovered a YouTube channel called Overly Sarcastic Productions. And I will be linking out to a couple of Overly Sarcastic Productions. But just for fun, if you loved or hated, <laughs> whether you loved or hated Lord of the Flies, I think that's the one you should start with on this particular YouTube channel. She does all of the Greek myths. She has a, a history major. They're both at Yale, I think. Uh, a history major who's also doing a bunch of Greek and Roman history. They've just, they do it all. And they're very, well, very sarcastic. So there's a lot of fun to be had over there. And on that note, a slightly happier note, I will leave you. Take care. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>